Our scripture reading is Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Please open your Bibles or your devices to that passage and then keep them open as we walk through it together because God's Word is what has the power uh, to transform us. So we want to be exposed to God's Word. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Before we hear God's word, let's pray together. O living and true God, how we thank you for your word and spirit. We pray that you would please open your word to our minds and hearts. And please open our minds and hearts to your word. Grant that we might receive it in faith, hope, and love. And that your spirit might take it and use it to bear much abiding fruit in us and in our relationships. For Jesus' sake, amen. Philippians 2, verses 4, chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Hear God's word. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So it's the reading of God's holy and inspired word. You'll find a, an outline in the bulletin if that's helpful at all. And it may not be because I've already changed my mind since I sent this outline in, but I'll, I'll tell you what the, where the changes are. But you might be wondering, how to fight with each other as Christians? What kind of topic is that? How to fight with each other? Isn't it how should we avoid fighting with each other? Well, I have a parable to tell you. It's actually a true story. And it, it's, I'm reminded of it as summer draws to an end because it was something I did every uh, Labor Day weekend. I met a fellow in college. He and I had a job together, and we got to be friends. And while I was at the school, we lived close to his family, but far away from mine. And so he started inviting me to come down to his home on weekends. And, and I got to be friends with his family, too. They were a very godly uh, Christian family. And the upshot was I got this standing invitation to go to this beach house that they owned in Ocean City every Labor Day weekend. And so that became my tradition. Every Labor Day weekend, I'd go and spend 
uh, this weekend with that family and enjoy the beach and enjoy fellowship and just have a lot of uh, relaxation. Well, time went on and I got married and his, this, my friend's family began teasing him and saying, well, when are you going to get married? And by that point, I was in seminary and, he's, and he put them off by saying, well, not until Larry graduates from seminary and gets ordained so he can perform the wedding. And that was, that was a good joke at first, but time keeps marching on, as you know. And I'm, I'm approaching my senior year of seminary, and he starts feeling pressure. He puts pressure on himself. So we come to the beach, Labor Day weekend, and he and I do what we usually do. We would take a walk and catch up because we hadn't seen each other uh, for the past year, and, he's, and, he, and he told me that he's engaged. I said, oh, that's great. And he was telling me all about her, and he says, and, and I would like you to do the wedding. And I said, wow, that's, that's really great. Tell me more about her. And he speaks about this relationship, and he says, and the best thing of all is uh, we never fight. And now, I have to tell you something about myself. I'm kind of a tease, and when I'm on a beach holiday, I'm especially in a, a jocular mood. I, and so I said to him, just it sort of blurted out of my mouth. I, I just said, oh, I couldn't possibly do the wedding in that case. And he, he was shocked. He stopped walking, and he said, why not? And then I started to get a little more serious, but I still was kind of joking. But I said, well, don't you think that it would be wise before you get married uh, to know whether you can resolve a disagreement if you have one? And he was quiet, and we just kept walking. It was left at that. Well, the next day, he told me he had broken up with his fiance. <laughs> they had broken up. And I said, oh, no, why, why is that? He says, Be well, because I picked a fight with her. And <laughs> well, I tell you what, I'm laughing now, but I felt awful at that time. I felt really awful, and he felt awful too, but later he, he actually thanked me and he said, um, but the truth is we weren't able to resolve our disagreements. We weren't, we weren't really mature enough at this point. Well, I, I'm telling you this as kind of a parable because as American Christians, we tend to think that a sound and a healthy church is one that never has disagreements, that always has smooth selling, that never has conflicts, that always has peaceful relationships. But that's not really true. That's not really true. And we know it by, by practice, but we know it also from God's Word. And so if you're trying to follow this outline, the first part is, is still the same. Do not be overcome by conflict. And look especially at verses 1 to 3. The reason strong and healthy churches can have conflicts is because strong and healthy Christians can have conflicts. And not only can we, but we do. Look at verse 2. I entreat, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. 
So this is to be read in the public worship service. Imagine your name being called out right in the middle of the service. I want you to make up, you two, <laughs> and agree in the Lord. And it's, that means it was something very important that must have been uh, disturbing the whole congregation, even causing division in the congregation. Well, who were Euodia and Syndike? Uh, once I read an article that imagined uh, them as two grouchy old women who were gossipy troublemakers, and, and the fellow who wrote the article even called them odious and stinky. And I honestly think that that tells us more about the guy who wrote the article than it does about Euodia and Syntyche, because that is not how the Holy Spirit describes him. If we just keep reading, we'll see how the Holy Spirit describes him. Look at verse 3. These women have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So these two ladies are real Christians. Their names are in the book of life. And they're faithful Christians who rolled up their sleeves and served. They have labored side by side with me in the gospel, not just with him, but with other fellow workers. In other words, Euodia and Syntyche were strong and healthy Christians, and yet they had this conflict that was so bad that the Apostle Paul felt it necessary to mention it in the public worship service, in his letter that got recorded in Scripture. Which raises a question, doesn't it? Why is it that strong and healthy Christians have conflicts? And there are at least three reasons, maybe more, but there are at least these three reasons. Number one, because we are each sinners, and so there's, there's a sort of a selfishness within each of us. And as we know, sin is it's not just guilt, but it's a power that's at work within us so that sometimes we, we do what we don't want to do and we fail to do what we do want to do, but, but somehow this power overpowers us. Number two, because we're each finite, none of us have all knowledge, none of us have all wisdom, which is one reason why it's so good to have a group of elders leading the church, because there's safety in a multitude of counselors. No one person has all wisdom and knowledge, and so when you put a group together, that helps raise the odds of coming to wise decisions. And number three, because as, as unlikely as it might seem, conflict is actually one of the means God uses to sanctify and to unify us. Those of you who are married know that this is, this is the case. As you go on in marriage, you discover that you have conflicts with one another. And this is an instrument that God uses to sanctify uh, the husband and to sanctify the wife. He uses each other and this relationship and learning, being exposed to how selfish you are and etc. God uses this to expose sin and to, to sanctify us. And it's true in the church as well. Sometimes I, I like to compare it to horse chestnuts or buckeyes. Do you know what those and the nuts are, they're not edible, but they're, they're nuts that grow on trees. And, and when, you, when the husk is taken off, they look like buckeyes. I mean, they're a brown nut with, a, with sort of a tan, looks like the eye of a deer. Uh, but when the husk is still on, the husk has real pointy spikes that stick out. And it's as if we are each that, a, buck, a, a buckeye or a, 
a horse chestnut, and the Lord puts us all together in a sack, and then he starts to shake that sack, and so we start jagging into each other, and that hurts. And, but the more that happens, the more those sharp edges get smoothed down, rubbed down, smoothed off. The Lord uses those relationships and even the conflicts in the relationships in order to sanctify us, in order to unify us. But notice this from this scripture. Whenever believers do have conflicts, God calls them to overcome them and to be reconciled. Look at verse 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now notice that Paul doesn't even say what they disagreed over. That doesn't seem to be the important thing. The point is not that they're to think in unison. The point is that they are to walk in love, Christ-like love. Why? Because they're sisters in the Lord. But there's another important factor to note, and that's this. When believers do have conflicts, God doesn't want the rest of us to just leave them on their own, but he calls other believers to come alongside and help them to be reconciled. Look at verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Now, the Apostle Paul doesn't say who he's talking to here. Might be the pastor. We're not sure. But it also applies to all of us. No Christian is at liberty to stand aloof from the needs of other Christians, and especially Christians that God has put into our lives. The, the existence of a need in any that God has put into our life is God's call to come alongside. All those commands, those one another commands, love one another, accept one another, bear one another's burdens, bear with one another, all those uh, come to bear on this. A strong and healthy church is not one that never has conflicts, but it is one where its members act like the family of God and help each other. So don't be overcome by conflict, but instead overcome conflict with godliness and godly love. And now if you're trying to follow the outline, this is where it, it goes different because point, what is point three in the outline now has been moved up to this point. And, and point two is moved down below that. A strong and healthy church is one where its members rely on the Lord uh, to give them victory over conflict. Uh, and I, I had this at the end of the sermon, but I thought it might be more important to emphasize it at this point. Uh, Christianity is a rescue religion. The Lord doesn't just give us rules and say, now, fix yourself. And Pastor Dale has been preaching that the whole way through Romans and before that through Galatians. I mean, we should know this, and we do know it, at least in our heads, but we need to be reminded constantly, don't we? This has everything to do with how we become Christians. We don't rely on our doing, but on the perfect doing and dying of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just knowing the facts about the doing and dying of our Lord Jesus Christ, but it's knowing the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting ourselves to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, being connected to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that has everything to do not just with how we become Christians, but how we go on living as Christians, living the Christian life. And that's why I use this, this terms, overcome conflict with loving godliness and godly love. 
We tend to think of godliness as one thing and, and love as another. But, but what I'm talking about are two sides of the same thing. Loving godliness and godly love are two sides of the same thing. Years ago, I read, remember reading Francis Schaeffer, one of his books about the church at the end of the 20th century or the church before the watching world, or, or maybe, maybe both of them. But he, he, he would make this point, uh, and he was thinking about Presbyterian history and early Orthodox Presbyterian history and uh, some of the divisions that took place there. And he said that it is possible to counterfeit love in the flesh, and it is possible to counterfeit holiness in the flesh, but it's impossible to have loving holiness and holy love except by the Holy Spirit. That's a fruit of the Spirit. And he said, when you counterfeit holiness in the flesh, it tends to degenerate into self-righteousness and, and harshness and judgmentalism. And when you counterfeit love in the flesh, it tends to degenerate into, into laxness and antinomianism. But the Holy Spirit produces as his fruit a love that is holy and a holiness that is loving at the very same time. And I'm applying that same principle here. Godliness and love, when the Holy Spirit produces it, are two sides of the same thing, loving godliness and godly love. And that's what we need to overcome conflict. So cling to the promise that God makes in verse 7. Look down at verse 7, Philippians 4, 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And when we read that, we tend to think this, this is talking about peace of mind, and it's, it's more than we can understand. But it's not saying that, is it? If you look closely, it says it's the peace of God. It's an objective fact. It's the, it's the object of peace that God has made uh, between himself and us through the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ and between ourselves and one another. That wall of partition that God has torn down with Jesus Christ is our peace. He has joined us to one another. We are part of that one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We have peace with one another and we have peace with God. That's the object of fact. And it's more than peace of mind. It says it surpasses all understanding. It transcends all understanding. It's more than peace of mind. Peace of mind is a fruit of this kind of peace, uh, but this peace is something that is God's gift in Christ Jesus. Whoever is united to Christ becomes connected to Christ, to the triune God, and connected to everyone else who is connected to the triune God. And it is God's peace, that objective fact, that will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus as you seek to pursue reconciliation and peacemaking in, the, in your relationships, in the church, in the family. So how do you, we cling to this promise? How do we experience its supernatural blessing from the Lord? Well, the whole while that we are seeking not to be overcome by conflict, but to overcome conflict uh, with loving godliness and godly love, uh, we need, first of all, to keep looking back at what the Lord has done. Look at the end of verse 3. Whose names are in the book of life? If you unpack that, 
How do names get into the book of life? Well, it goes back to the Father's loving choice in eternity, choosing to set his love and plan uh, the work of salvation. It, it comes to the, the Son's loving sacrifice, adding to himself a human nature, living a perfect life, dying an atoning death, rising victorious from the grave to secure salvation. Uh, for those whom the Lord loves, comes to the Holy Spirit's uh, coming to apply that salvation to give new life and new birth and new strength and new hope and to keep and to take up residence in these hearts. So never lose sight of that big picture. When you think of your uh, fellow Christians with whom you're having a conflict, especially if you're having a conflict with them, remember his or her name is in God's book of life. And if that's God's verdict, then who do you think you are to reject that person? That's something I tell myself all the time. I, as a pastor, there have been many times, and a church planner, there have been many times when I'm tempted to say, Lord, why did you, why did you add this chucklehead or this difficult person? And, and this is always the answer. Election is God's prerogative, not mine. And if Christ laid down his life, shed his precious blood for that brother or sister, who do I think I am? If the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in the heart of that brother or sister, who do I think I am? Keep looking back to what, at what the Lord has done in securing the salvation of this person. No matter how much that person still needs sanctifying, no matter how much I still need sanctifying or you still need sanctifying, Keep looking back at what the Lord has done. Secondly, keep looking forward to what the Lord will do. Look at the end of verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Our Lord Jesus is coming back in power and in glory, and he'll set everything straight. He'll make everything right. He'll smooth everything out. He'll heal all divisions. But in the meantime, thirdly, keep looking up at what the Lord is doing. Look at the end of verse 9. And the God of peace will be with you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God of peace will be with you. He doesn't just say do this and leave you on your own, but no, he is with you. He's working in you. He's working through you. He's working by you. He's working for you. So what does it look like then if we seek to walk not by the flesh but by the Spirit in, in pursuing uh, peacemaking? Look closely at verses 1 to 9. We usually take these verses as a bunch of unrelated miscellaneous exhortations tossed in at the end of the epistle. The Apostle Paul's winding down his epistle and so he says, oh yes, before I forget, think of this thing. And before I forget, think of this. And before I forget, think of that. That's usually the way uh, we take these things. But as we go through them, I think you'll notice that this is a unified text. It's, it's speaking about the same basic theme. Uh, verse 1 begins the conclusion of the epistle to the Philippians. Look at verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The church was under attack. So to stand firm thus in the Lord means not just to stand, but also to stand together in Christ-centered unity. Alec Matir, 
uh, warns, Christians cannot stand firm from a position of division and harmony. And the Apostle Paul had already declared what this means earlier, uh, chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So with that in mind, notice what ties Philippians 4, verses 1 to 9 together. It's a concern for peace. So stand firm thus, and then Yodia and Syntyche, please agree in the Lord. And then down in verse 7, there's a mention of the peace of God. And then down in verse 9, there's mention of the God of peace. This is, this is all about peace. And these verses tell us how we behave in order to overcome conflict with loving godliness and godly love, which we need to keep remembering is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, not something that we can work up uh, from our own resources. And so there are six exhortations here. And the first is this, consciously keep taking the Lord's side. Euodia and Syntyche had a, had a strong disagreement probably relating to something in the life or ministry of the church. What usually occasions, judge, uh, occasions conflict is having to make judgment calls. Just think back to the whole COVID fiasco and elders of, of, of not just this church, of all the churches were trying to, trying to just do their best to navigate something that we did, had never done before and didn't know for sure what to expect. And, and we're hearing voices uh, from the government and media saying one thing, and we're hearing other voices. Say, and, we're, and, and people had to make judgment calls, and the leaders of the church had to make judgment calls. And whatever the judgment call, which were right or not, that's not the point. Yuri and Syndicate probably had to make some judgment call. And they disagreed about it. Yodia said one thing and Syntyche said another thing. And what do we normally do in the flesh when we have a strong disagreement uh, with uh, someone else? Well, we usually try it in the flesh. What we do is we try to recruit other people to take our side, don't we? That's the impulse of the flesh. How else can you win, right? All the better if you can get a well-respected pastor or missionary that, to take sides with you. And so it could be that Euodia or Syntyche or both of them wrote uh, to the Apostle Paul in prison trying to get him to take sides. But look closely at how the Apostle responds. Verse 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So whose side did the Apostle take, Euodia or Syntyche? Or more accurately, whose side did the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul take? Didn't matter whether he liked one or the other better. He consciously took the Lord's side. Agree in the Lord. Make that your first commitment to always seek to take the Lord's side. The Lord's always the most important person in the church, which sort of leads us into this second exhortation to consciously exalt the Lord and keep doing so. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And notice this does not say feel joyful. It's a command, rejoice in the Lord. Do something about the Lord. In other words, exalt the Lord. 
Exalt him in your heart and affections. Exalt him in your behavior and your thoughts. Worship the Lord. Shift your focus away from your feelings to the Lord. And moreover, shift your focus away from your circumstances to the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. And unhappily, it's sort of our inclination to skip over a command like this. And yes, we know this stuff, so hurry up and get on to something uh, more practical. But this is so important that he repeats it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And why is this so important? Well, for one thing, it, it reminds us who is really central. The Lord is the one who's really central in all things. He's the one who's really important. He's the one who is to be exalted, not me and not you. Rejoicing in the Lord is central also reminds us that the situation we're in, the, the conflict we're in, is, is no accident. The Lord is sovereign and good. The Lord who works all things after the counsel of his will puts us into situations like this for our good. Remember those horse chestnuts, those jaggy nuts smoothing each other down. Another reason to consciously rejoice in the Lord is to put down pride. Because not only does rejoicing in the Lord remind us of God's proper place, but it also puts us in our proper place. C.S. Lewis wrote, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It's because I wanted to be the life of the party that I'm so annoyed that someone else is the life. Pride is essentially competitive. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. Thus far, C.S. Lewis. But when you make the choice to shift your focus away from yourself or your circumstances to the Lord, then you want the Lord to be number one. And the more the Lord is number one to you, the more it liberates you to follow this third exhortation, consciously cultivate big-heartedness. Look at the beginning of verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Of this word reasonableness, the, William Hendrickson uh, said, there's not a single word in the English language that fully expresses the meaning of the original. And he said it could be translated forbearance, yieldedness, geniality, kindliness, gentleness, sweet reasonableness, considerateness, charitableness, mildness, magnanimity, generosity. But his proposal was big-heartedness that sort of captured the, the thought of a lot of those uh, different possibilities. Let your big-heartedness be known to everyone. Don't just keep it a secret, but let it be known to everyone. Let it be clear. And Hendrickson went on to say, the Christian reasons that it is far better to suffer wrong than to inflict wrong, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7. Such big-heartedness, such forbearance, the patient willingness to yield wherever yielding is possible without violating any true principle must be shown to all. 
being reasonable, being big-hearted in the midst of a conflict has positive benefits, especially when it is known to everyone because it reflects, <laughs> this isn't natural. Jesus Christ is working by his presence and power in the life of this person, and that glorifies him and it pleases him, but it also guards you from speaking and acting harshly, which tends only to make matters worse. I told you about going to my friend's home and getting to know his family, and his father managed a hospital in the Philadelphia area, and and he was a very godly man, and I remember chatting with him on one of our beach weekends, and, and he told me that people come to him really angry all the time, yelling at him, ready to bite his head off uh, because of some frustration or, or other. And he, he remembered what God says in the book of Proverbs, a gentle answer or a soft answer turns away wrath. And so he said that when that happens, he, he, he makes it a point to always, and he prayed that God would strengthen him to always do this. Uh, to always answer by speaking very softly. And the people are yelling, their volume is way up here, and he's, so he's speaking way down here. And quietly, calmly, softly. And he said that little by little, uh, the anger would come down and the volume would come down, and, and eventually they'd be able to have a, a discussion that was helpful. <laughs> Let your big-heartedness be known to everyone. And finally, this kind of um, big-heartedness can be contagious. It can encourage other people uh, to act that way, even if the per person or persons that you're having a conflict with. Well, here's the fourth exhortation, uh, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And that word tra translated anxious means laden with cares, troubled, pressured, squeezed, burdened, under stress. Whenever we're in a conflict, feelings like that tend to multiply. And especially if it involves issues that are important to you or people who are important to you. Anxiety has a way of worming its way in even when we try to push it out. So what God says here in this verse is, don't try to push it out. Instead, grab hold of that anxiety, but transform it into prayer. Grab hold of that anxiety and turn it into prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. A fifth exhortation elaborates on that with thanksgiving. Consciously focus on what the Lord has already done. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is a very popular verse to use as a standalone. It's on a lot of posters. And it is good counsel that way. But don't forget, it comes here as part of this discussion about how to overcome conflict with loving godliness and godly love. When we're in a conflict, what do we ordinarily do in the flesh? We tend to focus on the negative characteristics of the person who's disagreeing with us. We tend to overlook his or her virtues and overinflate his or her faults, don't we? 
And the more we do this, the easier it is to imagine the worst about our adversary, which can lead us to completely misjudge his or her values, his or her motives, his or her actions. And if we keep that up, it can make us bitter. We can just dwell on our hurt and get obsessed with our hurt and fall into self-pity, uh, to steeping ourselves in, in self-centered thoughts of how I don't deserve this. Woe is me. And thanks to the sin that is in us, that's what comes naturally to us. But the Lord calls us consciously to counter that sinful bent by deliberately thinking about the things in our rival that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. In other words, yes, your Christian rival is still a sinner, and he or she may have sinned grievously in this instance and does have room for sanctification, but focus your attention also on what the Lord has already done in that regard. Like that old song right after World War II, this was a popular song. You've got to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, latch on to the affirmative, don't mess with Mr. In-Between. Which does not mean, it does not mean you become a Pollyanna and ignore things that are wrong, but it does mean that you choose to consciously offset your sinful tendency to focus only on what's bad in your opponent by focusing also on what's good, on what the Lord already has done. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Then a sixth exhortation, consciously determined to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Look at the beginning of verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. It's important that we get our thinking right, but it also needs to be followed up by getting our practice right. Notice that the Apostle Paul not only gave good teaching, but he also set a good example. Because some things are actually better caught than taught. Or maybe we're just hard-hearted enough that we need not only to hear it, but also to see it and to receive it from several different angles. One reason the Lord gives us baptism and the Lord's Supper as well. But one thing that this makes me think is how important it is that believers spend time together, not only seeing good examples, but setting good examples for one another. When someone says, why should I go to church? Well, there are lots of reasons, but this is one of them, isn't it? So that you can see good examples and set good examples for others. That's something that God tells you to do. Well, we've heard six exhortations uh, for overcoming conflict with loving godliness and godly love. Number one, keep trying to take the Lord's side. Number two, keep trying to exalt the Lord. Number three, keep cultivating big-heartedness. Number four, keep turning fretting into praying. Number five, keep focusing on what the Lord has already done in the other person. Number six, keep aiming to be doers of God's word and not hearers only. But here's the problem. Each of these goes against the grain of our sinful flesh. And the fact is we can't do a single one of them, at least not, not wholeheartedly, not gladly, not persistently, 
We can't do it in our own strength, which is why we ever need Jesus and the fresh forgiveness uh, that he gives. And we ever need the Holy Spirit and the fresh strength uh, that he gives. Jesus Christ has worked salvation for us and the Holy Spirit is working in us what Christ has worked for us. And that's what we need, which is why I had that point three at the end, but I felt like it, it needed to be earlier in the sermon. But keep looking to the Lord. Look back, look forward, look up. The heartbeat of a healthy church is the gospel. And the heart of the gospel is reconciliation. Reconciliation with God, reconciliation with one another. While we were still God's enemies, he loved us and made peace with us through the death and resurrection of his son. And because we've been reconciled to God and because God has put his spirit of reconciliation in our hearts, we can be reconciled with one another. The peace of God exists. It's an object of fact, but we're to work it out in practice, and we need the Lord's help to do that. Christ has worked salvation for us. The Holy Spirit's working it in us, and that means that we're able to repent and seek one another's forgiveness, and that means we're able to forgive one another, and that's a radically different way for people to relate to each other. It's a way that brings great glory uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's a way that bears powerful witness to the watching world. It's not natural. It's supernatural. And when the world, and, that, and I'm including our children who are growing up in the churches as well, when the, when the world and our children see this happening, that's exactly what they think. This isn't natural. How is this possible? Maybe this stuff about the Lord and the gospel is true after all. And it is true after all. So hang on to Jesus and press on in faith and obedience. Let's pray together. O living and true God, how grateful we are for you and for your great salvation. Salvation that delivers us not just from the guilt of our sins, although that's more than uh, we can even imagine, uh, but, but also from the power of sin, even from our sins. And so give us grace day by day to offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice, day by day to put ourselves in your hands in repentance and faith, relying on you and walking with you and step by step, um, not only repenting of our sins and seeking forgiveness where we need to, but also granting forgiveness uh, where that too is needed. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by speak, singing of that peace of God that passes all understanding. Blessed be the tie that binds. Please stand and sing.
sisters, that's our hope in Jesus Christ. From sorrow, sin, and toil, we shall be set free. And perfect love and friendship brand between God and all our dream brothers and sisters for all eternity. The Lord sends us out to walk in faith and obedience. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do what is well-pleasing in his sight, working in you, or that you may do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Amen.